Welcome to Southern Illinois Worship Center. Today, you'll be hearing a powerful message from our latest series. Let's listen in now. Hebrews chapter 9. Then we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 17, Revelation chapter 12, Joshua chapter 2. We are in a series right now, while you're finding all of those, uh, it called The Power Of. Last week, we talked about the power of deliverance. Uh, today, probably more than anything, I want to tell you a story. Um, so I'm probably going to preach it a little differently than maybe you've ever heard me preach before. Uh, some of you have been around here a long time, maybe you will. Um, I've heard this, my style of preaching before. So as soon as we get done reading the verses, strap your seatbelt in. We're going to go really fast, okay? Uh, so let's begin uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And according to the law, uh, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Almost all things are purified according to the law. So where does it say it in the law? That's why we're going to go back to Leviticus chapter 17. And we'll read verse 11. There it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It is the blood. So that's where it's written in the law. It is the blood that makes atonement for our soul. Then let's jump down back to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 10 and 11. These two verses have been stuck, and since I'm in the South, now I grew up in northern Indiana, but I'm in the South, I can say this word. These two verses have been stuck in my crawl for a while, um, but I've been here 12 years now. I guess I am Southern Illinois, but uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, of each of us, me and you, the accuser of us, who accused them, meaning he accused us before our God day and night. He has been cast down. And they, meaning us, we overcame him, our enemy, that's a small h. We overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We'd say our testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Now we're going to jump all the way back to, towards the beginning of the Bible, Joshua chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. There it says, unless we, when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, or maybe you guys would say you bring all the Ewans in. Bring all y'all in. Bring all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever was with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. Now I want you to remember that story right there in Joshua chapter 2. Because this is the whole Bible kind of bases off what I'm going to say about this verse in a little bit. But I think many of us, when we read God's Word, we look at God's Word and we think it's just a bunch of stories that are not connected. 
I took you from the book of Hebrews chapter 9. We jumped back to Leviticus chapter 17. Then we jumped all the way forward to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Then we jumped back to the book of Joshua chapter 2. And we're like, none of that is connected. He's in four different books of the Bible, two different testaments, three or four different eras of time. One of those times hasn't even happened yet. One of those things did happen. The rest of it happened so long ago. I don't know how it is even applicable to my life. But the Bible is not a collection of a bunch of stories about just morality and integrity and cute little stories that we can have some holidays about. Instead, the Bible is actually one overarching story. Actually, by the end of this, you can say it's my story and it's your story. But it's actually one big story about salvation that is found only in and through Jesus Christ and his blood that he shed for each of us on Calvary. So the whole Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testaments, are all pointing us to one person, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, they would say, is the schoolmaster that's teaching us of the coming Christ, the work of Christ, and the redemptive plan that has been brought to us by Jesus Christ. And I realize that as we read, there are 66 books of the Bible, and each of them are filled with stories upon stories upon stories. And we see, as we read them, we think that there may be no interconnection between any of them. But the writer of Ephesians would actually say it like this. He's, the whole Bible is talking about one Lord and one faith and one baptism. Or we could say it more collectively, it's all the story about the blood of Jesus Christ. So the overarching theme of God's word is best summed up in what we would say in the story I read to you in Joshua chapter 2, the story of the scarlet cord and how that cord is interwoven through all of history. And now we read it in Joshua chapter 2, but that's not where the story began about the scarlet cord. Matter of fact, we could go back to the beginning of time in the garden. That's where the story of the scarlet cord actually began to happen. It started there in the garden. It started when a serpent was used by our enemy, Satan, to tempt a woman whom God had made. How did, God, how did Satan tempt that woman? What does he do to her to get her to fall in temptation? Well, first of all, he didn't do anything that was new. His approach in every way, whether it was with Eve or it's with you, it's very old. So we, can, we know exactly what Satan, Lucifer, that old serpent, the snake, the devil, we know exactly what he's going to say before he ever says it. We know exactly what he's going to do before he ever does it. He has never come up with a new plan. And his plan is so old that we are foolish to fall uh, prey to his attacks. So here, the attack that Lucifer has, you have to remember, the attack isn't really on you, it's on God. So you are just a pawn in his game to get back at God for kicking him out of heaven. Or you could say you're his pawn or you're his victory because he wants to be number one and he'll never be number one. So we know exactly what our enemy is going to say. And the first thing he's going to say is he's going to put a question mark after God's word. He's going to quote God's word, and then he's going to put a question mark where God put a period. Or he's going to put a question mark where God put an exclamation point. Period meaning command, exclamation being something exciting is getting ready to happen. So God gives you a promise, and he puts a period, meaning that's the command of God. And then your enemy, Lucifer, comes to you, and he puts a question mark where God put a promise. And he says, did God really say that? Did God really show you that? Did God really promise you that your whole house was going to be saved? Did God really promise you that? 
that he was going to heal you? Did God really promise that he was going to save your husband or your daughter or your son or your daughter? Did God really say all of that? So he's asking these questions where God put a period. And we live in a society right now that wants to question everything. That tells me that our enemy is well on the prowl and many people are falling trick to an old playbook the devil is using. Ask us, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Then after the question mark, after he gets you to realize, oh, maybe that wasn't a command, maybe that wasn't a promise from God, and then you begin to question, and then he inserts a lie. After every question, he gives you what he wants you to believe. So he causes you to question, then he inserts a lie. And we talked about last week that every bondage begins in a lie. Every time we get entangled in things that we shouldn't be entangled in, we have now had a question mark come into our mind, and the enemy now inserts what he believes to be the truth and wants you to believe to be the truth. And so we begin entangled through a question, then a lie. Then after the lie, he will say this, then he will give you this. He will say, well, God didn't really say that. Did God actually say, to, this is what he says to Eve, will you actually die? Will you actually do that? What, 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 what's going to happen to you if you do that? Why don't you go ahead and try that and see what happens if you try that? Let me say this to you. If God put a period and an exclamation point there, whatever you're going to do after that, you're headed for destruction. And many people think, well, they, I, I feel good. I got the vibes. It feels good to me. Are you questioning God's word? Because if you're questioning God's word, then all of a sudden, you're going to live in denial of God's word and truth over your life. And that's headed for destruction. So then after he tells her the denial of God's word, Satan then presents to Eve a solution. He gives her to the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and of good and of evil. Then this woman Eve, she ate of it. She was tried. She was now deceived by the serpent. She then takes the fruit to Adam. Adam was not deceived. Adam knew that at the moment that he ate of the fruit, that he would surely die. So then the next morning after this whole event happens, God shows up at the Bob Evans appointment that he and Adam and Eve have every morning. But Adam and Eve didn't show up at Bob Evans. Adam, Adam and Eve didn't want to go to Bob Evans. They didn't like the menu that God had prepared. They're hanging out over at Cracker Barrel. But God showed up at Bob Evans, and he's like, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? He's shouting over to Cracker Barrel, calls over to Cracker Barrel to find out if they're there. Well, they jump ship over there, and they're not an IHOP. Because that's what people do when they're running from God. They hop everywhere. And so finally, they show up, and God says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And so here's the voice of God, and out of the covering of the trees of the Garden of Eden, Adam answers God. And he said, I heard you were coming. Of course he was coming. You had this appointment with God every day. And it was never a bother. You were never afraid of this appointment with God. You told God all the animals you'd named the day before and all the things that you and Eve had saw in the garden. Why are you afraid on this day? God said, afraid? Who told you to be afraid? Who made you be afraid? Who taught you fear, Adam? Fear isn't from me. Who taught you this? Adam said, I was afraid for I was naked and my wife was naked. And the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that the way I created you was not sufficient? 
Who told you that you weren't marvelous? Who told you that you have to look like Hollywood wants you to look? Who told you you have to look like the bully at school wants you to look? Who told you that? The way I created you, I made you marvelous. Everything that I made is a masterpiece. But who told you that you're not sufficient for me? Who told you to be afraid? Who told you you were naked? And so in the presence of God, Adam and Eve begin to rehearse the story. They said, well, uh, we made ourselves fig leaves to cover our shame and our nakedness because we had this incident with this snake and this fruit tree. And the Lord looked upon their covering of what they have created to cover up their shame and their nakedness. And God said, what man has created cannot cover what I'm seeing. What man has tried to produce in his own life cannot cover up what is just happening. Your covering will never do. And so somewhere in the Garden of Eden, an innocent animal that Adam had probably just named, that Adam and Eve probably had just fed. Everything was perfect and wonderful, and this little animal's just running around like my two dogs jumping on the couch into the lazy boy, treats all the time. They have no idea that there's a world outside where people actually have to go look for food. They just come, nudge my hand, and food appears. That's the way this animal was. Everything was amazing and perfect, and all of a sudden, God shows up, grabs this innocent animal by, however he grabbed it by its neck, and he kills the animal. Its blood is now spewing out on the ground. And it's the first time that Adam realizes that the sin that they had committed yesterday is now destructive for other people's future. It's the first time that Adam realizes that the wages of sin is death. And it wasn't just death for him and Eve. It was also death for an innocent animal that God had to kill in order to cover Adam and Eve's shame and their wickedness that was happening in their lives. This is actually the beginning of the scarlet cord in the Bible. With the sacrifice of an innocent animal, God took the coats of that animal, made skin and covered their shame and their nakedness for Adam and Eve. And this is the first sacrifice recorded in the Bible. And it was not offered by Adam. It was not offered by Eve. It was offered by the hand of God. And I had to wonder, what would Adam and Eve be thinking I mean, this was, they had just named this animal. God gave them authority over everything in the garden, including naming the animals. Can you imagine the job that day? I mean, what was going through their mind when they got to hippopotamus? Rhinoceros. I think Adam, as he got naming the birds, I think as he got doing the names of the animals, I think as he got later on in naming all them, he got really lazy with it, right? Because we went from rhinoceros and hippopotamus, and then they pull this one out, and he's like, black bird. Blue bird. But before he got down the list, it was a cardinal. I'm just going to say it. So, named by God. What were they thinking, though? This little animal, innocent. Because of their actions, they had caused the destruction of an innocent creature. And then they saw the blood soil the ground. And so the story of atonement, sacrifice begins. It starts to unfold throughout the word of God until finally, in glory, in heaven, we will see the great throngs of the saints who've washed their robes, made them white. How? Through the blood of the lamb. This is the scarlet cord. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis concerned the whole family of the human race. 
And it constitutes God's introduction to the world and the introduction to his word. Beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where they're introduced to one family whom God has chosen and through whom God will keep all that he has promised. Where he said, I will give thee a seed that shall crush Satan's head. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, we're introduced to a man by the name of Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, in verses 1 through 3, God speaks to Abraham, and he says it like this. He says, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, this is in contradiction to almost everything that's going on in America. We want other people to bless us. God designs us to be a blessing. Let me say that again, just so y'all don't roll down the path of political environment and they begin to preach to you a mantra that is not biblical. We are to be a blessing. In other words, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. It is more blessed to be able to give people things than to receive things from other people. We live in a nation now that wants to take everything from everybody else. I want to be in a church that wants to give. It's getting quiet in this church house. You shall be a blessing. I will, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, in you, Abram, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now how in the world, some 6,000 years after this thing is said, after Abram has lived, how in the world can Abram's promise that God gave him, how in the world can that be a blessing to me, Jason McKinnis, in the year 2021, and it be a blessing to all of the families, not just me, but every person in section A, section B, section C, section D, section E, and across the auditorium, and all of you online, this promise is to you, that all of the families of the earth will be blessed. How is that happening? I'm glad you asked. We'll get to that in about 20 minutes. So then Abram hears this word from God, and Abram goes to Haran. Haran. Abram went, no, it's actually Haran, but I like to enunciate it as Haran because that means we're blessed. Abram went to Haran, and he wound in later on after he went to Haran, he winds up outside of the cities with his little nephew by the name of Lot, and they wind up outside of the cities of two cities by the name of Sodom and Gomorrah. After the Sodom and Gomorrah amazing experience, Abraham would then have a son. Years later, he has a son, the son of promise named Isaac, meaning laughter. Some 30 years after the birth of this son of promise, Isaac, there's a three-day event that happens in Abraham and Isaac's life that changes the whole trajectory of their family and all of our families. It happens on top of Mount Moriah. There, Abraham and his son Isaac are headed up to the top of the mountain. They're carrying wood. They got everything they need for a sacrifice. And Isaac says to his dad, and I still, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Isaac, what took you so long to ask this question? He said, Father, we have the fire, we have a knife, and we've got the wood. But where is the sacrifice? I would have been asking that before we left home. But three days later, they're having this conversation, and he binds up his son Isaac, lays him on the altar, begins to take the knife out to begin to sacrifice his son, and behold, there is a ram over there in the thicket. And he names the place Jehovah Jireh, our God will provide. What did God provide? God provided a substitute sacrifice so that the promised son would not be killed. Instead, this innocent ram was provided by God. It is important that we know that it was a ram, because the lamb would come in the New Testament, 
Testament. In the Old Testament, God was providing other things, but God one day would provide himself a lamb. But this isn't the moment. And so in the nick of the time, Isaac is spared. Then Isaac comes down the mountain. He meets this beautiful woman. They have two sons named Jacob and Esau. Then in Jacob and Esau, we find this struggle. We find trickery. We find deception. And ultimately, there was a blessing that was pronounced that was supposed to be Esau's. But Jacob got it. And so Jacob and Esau go to war with each other. And then out of Jacob, he marries all these women. He has he's all these children. And he has one favorite son from his most favored bride, Joseph. One day, Joseph is sent by his father down to the city named Dothan. And there he's there in order to find his flocks and his brothers who were keeping his father's sheep. And when Joseph appeared at the city of Dothan, he finds his brothers, the hatred that his brothers had him become on full display. They realize that this is a time for us to take an opportunity to destroy our brother that our father favors. And he favors him so much, he gives him a coat that he hasn't given to us. And I think a lot of people have that same jealousy in their heart, not realizing that our heavenly father will give you the same coat that you're jealous about in other people's lives. But here they propose to kill him because Joseph has a coat they don't have. But their brother Reuben persuades them, maybe we shouldn't kill him. We should keep him alive. So they hatch a plan. They sell him to the Ishmaelites. And the Ishmaelites take him down to Egypt. And so his brothers mean it to take him down to Egypt. But God used what his brothers meant to put him down. And God elevates him up. And Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt under Pharaoh. And then there is a famine where Joseph's family, his true family, is living. And so they leave the land of Canaan. They go down to Joseph. They don't realize it's Joseph. But they go down to Joseph to get into Egypt to buy some grain. So then after they buy some grain, they realize Joseph is their brother. They go back. They get their father. And in Egypt, in the time of famine, they're given land to live in, in a land called Goshen. And so there, the whole family is settled. Pharaoh and Joseph settled the entire family of Jacob. Then we read that later on, Joseph would die. And just before he dies, he makes his brothers promise him that when they leave Egypt, the land that he was in, but not the land he was born from. The land that God made provision, but was not the land of promise. Even though God has provided, this isn't what God has promised. So when you leave the land of provision, I want you to make a promise to me that you're going to take my bones up out of Egypt, and you're going to take my bones not to the land of provision, but you're going to take me to the land of promise. So the Bible tells us that there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. He did not know Joseph in any way. And so this Pharaoh, not knowing what Joseph had done, doesn't understand the, the history of his nation. He begins to put the people of, Egypt, or of, of Israel into bondage to the Egyptians. And then God raises up a little boy. And they're killing all the young boys. And so God puts the boy in a little uh, bulrush and he puts him down the river. And the very river that they were killing the babies in is the very river that saved Moses. Moses is now raised up in the house of Pharaoh. And then one day he's out, he's watching something happen. And he watches is an Egyptian hit an Israelite. Something happened in his heart. And so he goes up and he murders the Egyptian for hitting the Israelite. Moses is scared. He runs to the backside of the desert and there he stands out there for years on the backside of nowhere. But then one day he's tending sheep and he's at the base of Mount Moriah. And at the base of Mount Moriah, now just imagine this, you're walking along Park Avenue in Heron, minding your own business, just taking care of business. You're, you, maybe you're not tending sheep. Let's just say you're just going down the road with your little oranges and your apples, and out of nowhere, a bush catches on fire, and it doesn't consume the bush, and not only is the bush on fire, a voice speaks out of it. I don't know about you, but there would be some running of the aisles in Heron. 
Right? The bush begins to speak to him, and God said out of the bush, I have heard the cry of my people, and I'm sending you to deliver them. And Moses said what most of us would say. Me? You mean you want to send me back there? Anybody but me. And then he began to make excuses, and God said, okay, for every excuse you get, I'm going to provide a solution. Every time you make an excuse, and this is what we do with God, and God says, I'll give you a solution. Finally, God said, listen, my people through whom I have made a promise, and I need to keep that promise, they must be delivered. So I'm sending you back down there, and you're going to confront confront Pharaoh. So he confronts Pharaoh. We know them as the ten plagues. We get to the last plague. It's the night of all nights. And on that night, the people are instructed. You need to take a lamb, put it in an Instapot, and get it ready. And before you put it in the Instapot, take its blood, pour the blood out, and take that blood and use some hyssop, what we would call mistletoe. Take that mistletoe and don't hang it up in the door blows and kiss anybody. No, you take the mistletoe, you put it in the blood, and then you begin to wipe the lintels and the doorposts of your home. They're doing it in the shape of a cross because tonight the angel of death is going to come over. And if the angel doesn't see the blood in the shape of the cross on your door, there's going to be death there. But if the angel passes over and he sees the blood, then anybody who is covered by the blood that is in that house will not suffer the destruction of the people who are not covered by the blood. I hope you're mopping what I'm dropping. I know I'm moving fast. Right? So on that night, God said, the blood is what will spare you. And so that night, the angel begins to pass over. And all the, in all the other homes, in all of the other families, there was death, there was wailing, there was destruction, and they were mourning throughout all of Egypt. But over in Goshen, where they had taken the blood and applied it, where they had engrafted and ingrained the scarlet cord into their lives, they were not crying. They were not wailing. Instead, that night, while everybody in Egypt was down and in mourning and destruction, the Bible says they walked out with a high hand. They walked out under the blessing of the Lord. Why? Because the story is a story about the blood and and the power of the blood to keep you from what everybody else is going through. So they leave out with a high hand. Not only did they leave out with a high hand, they crossed over the Red Sea by the providence of God. And then the Bible says they turned south. I know God loves people moving south. They turned south. Anybody say glory. South. I told the Lord that, Lord, I'm listen, I would like to move south. You know where he moved us? Southern Illinois. I'm like, if I didn't know any better, God doesn't have an atlas. But I know better. So I think he just did it because he told Abraham to go to Haran, and he told me to go to Haran. So they turned south. In the third month of the Exodus, they are now standing at the base of Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, for 40 days and for 40 nights, Moses is with God. And so he goes up the mountain, he's hanging out with God, and there God gives him three things. First, the Lord gives him the moral law in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Then God gives Moses the civil law, Exodus chapters 21 to 24. Then God gives him the ceremonial law, Exodus chapters 25 through 40. So let me just pause here just for a moment out of my notes and say something that some of you may think is political, but it's not. Let me say this. Our nation can pass all the civil laws 
it wants. But God did not give Moses the civil law first. He gave him moral law first. And morality comes from God. And so our nation can pass all the civil laws it wants to get us to love our brother and to care for our brother. But yet we begin to tell them, we want you to be civil, but we want you to ignore God. People will not be civil until they follow God and fall in love with God. We need to get morality back in our nation and get moral law back in. Then we can have civil law. You want to know why our nation doesn't have civility? We don't have God. I mean, it's the verbiage of our nation, God bless America, but when will America actually step back and bless God? So we go from civil law or moral law to civil law to ceremonial law. And in the ceremonial law, that's where we get the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices. Speaking of sacrifices, then we move out of the book of Exodus. We can jump into the book of Leviticus. Chapters 1 through the chapter 7 are the sacrifices. There are five of them. They're the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, or some people call that the Thanksgiving offering. Or there's the sin offering, and then there's the trespass offering. And so God gives them these, these five sacrifices given there in the book of Leviticus. In chapters 8 through 10, we get to the consecration of the priests. In chapters 11 through 15 of the book of Leviticus, we go through ceremonial holiness. In chapter 16, we are described the day of atonement. In chapters 17 through 23, we get all of the festivals. And in chapters 24 through 27, we get the vow, we get the tithe, and we get the laws of obedience. So God is prescribing all these things. And everyone one of the gatherings of the celebrations, or we would call them holy convocations of Israel, every one of those was a happy one. Every one of them was a happy one except one. And the one that was not was the Day of Atonement. So let me just pause here and say that church should be a happy place. The only time there's really tears of sorrow and of sadness is when we've messed up and we've jacked up and we got to get down to business with God and get some forgiveness for our sins. But if you've been forgiven and you're living under the blood of Jesus and under the glory of God, you ought to be the happiest person on the face of the earth. And some of us have it in our heart, but haven't told our face. And not only have not have we told our face, we're not telling our brothers and sisters how glorious it is to be a born-again believer by the blood of Jesus Christ. The world needs to see the church be more joyful than they are. Oh, I want you to come to my church. It's dead, dry, and boring. They can get that anywhere. They go to the bar because it's the, right? it's the theme song of Cheers. It's the happiest place in town. The church ought to be the happiest place in town. Every congregation of Israel was a happy one, except that Day of Atonement. The Jews even observe the Day of Atonement now. They call it Yom Kippur. And they become repentant on that day. The Day of Atonement is described in the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus. Then we jump out of the book of Leviticus, we go to the book of Numbers. We're almost to the end of the, just the first portion of the Old Testament. The book of Numbers, from chapters 1 to 10, it records all the events that happened in Mount Sinai. There's a census taken, the consecration of the Levites, the altar dedication. There's the observance of the Passover. Then we go to the second part of the book of Numbers. We find Israel wandering, march through the wilderness. Chapters 11 through 21, they make the journey from Mount Sinai to a town by the name of Kadesh Barnea. It's here at Kadesh Barnea that they elect 12 spies. They elect 12 people, and they send those 12 people over to the promised land. Ten come back, and they say, it is not possible. There is no way we can take the land. Two did not watch the news and said, we can do it. Ten were on social media watching the news and not paying attention to God's word. We can't do it. Two read God's word, believed God's word, and said, let's go. Some of you are like, 
Which camp am I in? Well, do you think it's possible or don't you? Either way, you're right. Because out of the confession of your mouth is what is in your heart. And as a man thinks, so is he. I'm in the camp of we can do it. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me the strength. So 10 say, oh, we don't think we need it. Two say, oh, yeah, let's go. Let's get after it. Let's get it. Well, because the majority ruled, they go into wilderness. That takes us to the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is made up of the five great addresses of Moses. And for time's sake, I won't go into all of them. But at the end of Moses' life, God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. And he says, you can't go into the promised land. You're going to have to pass away. We're going to raise up somebody in your stead. And after the death of Moses, Joshua comes on the scene. And Joshua is told by God, he said, Moses, my servant, is now dead. Therefore, arise, get up, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. God said, I give it to them. But they don't realize that even though God had given it to them, they're going to have to fight for every square inch of their promised land. They're going to be contested in every way. So just because God says you're going to get something doesn't mean the enemy's not going to resist you in it. Everything you are promised from God will come with a fight. It isn't a fight with God. It's a fight with the enemy. And so the enemy is not going to surrender anything. You're going to have to struggle, and you're going to have to fight. So Joshua realizes we're going to have to fight. They go over the Jordan and then begin the wars for the promised land. Joshua made three campaigns, the first of which is in the center of the country, and he's going to take the city of Jericho. They're going to conquer this magnificent walled city by the name of Jericho. It was in Jericho, that was the incident in which I read to you earlier, the story of the scarlet cord. The scouts were sent out, the spies were sent out by Joshua, and they said, can we take the land? We don't know where to go. And this woman welcomes them in. She's a woman of ill repute. And they tell her, hey, listen, even though you have a woman that you're a woman of the past, and you're not really of us, if you would just take this scarlet cord, and you will weave it in the window of your home, then when we come to destroy this city, when everything else around you is falling, when everything else is crumbling around you, we'll see the red in your window and because the, the scarlet cord is woven into your life and over your home, anybody who is in your house will be spared. Every person that's going to do it. Now, they said, we want you to take this little rope and we want you to put it out. Now, when we think of rope in our day, we think of ropes made out of hemp. But in Rahab's day, the ropes were not made out of hemp. Instead, they were made out of flax. And flax was the, also the same material which linen was made from. So that means that the Israelites who were sent there to spy, who were on the roof of her house, they're in, they're in flax. And the priest's robes who were on the other side of the Jordan, they were also covered in flax. And now Rahab's home is covered with flax. So the people that were up on top of the roof, and the priesthood was covered, and, the people, and Rahab's house is all now covered by the same thing. They're covered by flax. But you and I aren't covered by flax. So let me say it to you like this. Whether you were serving out there in the parking lot, you're serving over there in worship center kids, or you're sitting there on your couch watching me, or you're if in one of these seats, or you may be the preacher behind the pulpit. Every one of us are covered by the same thing. And it's not flax, my friend. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's the blood that covers every one of us, regardless of where we're at. Maybe you're even struggling in sin. Did you know the blood of Jesus covers you too? So they tell Rahab, you're going to be saved by letting down this scarlet cord. 
Now, there's not as many children in this service as there was at the 11, but because I like a peaceful marriage, I'm not going to use the terms that Melissa doesn't like to, to describe this. So let us just say a woman of Rahab's profession. If you don't know Rahab's profession, you'll have to study that out on your own because I want to keep Melissa happy right now. Because the last time I talked about Rahab, I basically said she was Tom Bodette from Motel 6. She left the light on for everybody. <laughs> Melissa's watching online up there, and I hear her coming down the steps right now. <laughs> A woman of Rahab's profession. She was not able to advertise on the Internet. She didn't have business cards. There was no yellow pages how she advertised who she was and that she was open for business as she painted her windowsill red. She paints the windowsill to tell everybody, this is who I am and this is what identifies my home as a place of sin. This is who I am. And so the spies come in and they go into this sinner's home who has announced to the whole world that she is a sinner. And they say to her, if you want to be saved, when we come in to destroy this city, what you need to do is you need to take this red cord, this, this cord, and you need to throw it over the top of your window. And you're going to throw it over the top of everything that you have announced that you are. And this tells you that you're lost. But because you've thrown this cord over the top of who you are, it's going to change your future. It's going to eradicate your past. And it's going to change not just your future, but your whole house. Your sons, your daughters, your mothers, and your fathers. And he said, listen, you've been messed up horizontally, but now you're getting fixed vertically. And because you're getting fixed vertically, it takes care of everything horizontally. And that's what we need to tell people in this day. I don't care who you were, but because you put the blood of Jesus over the top of your life, it changes everything in your life. You are no longer the person you used to be. You now are who you are by the blood of Jesus and the grace of Almighty God in your life. And so her whole house was saved. That scarlet thread, that cord saved her whole house. That scarlet cord is thrown into the fabric of every story in the Bible. It runs through Abraham, through the times of Judges, through Deborah, through Shamgar, all the way to the last judge who was named Samuel. Then that scarlet cord is woven after Samuel departs and a king is on the scene, King Saul. Then King Saul goes down and we're introduced to a boy by the name of David. But we're not introduced to David as a king. Instead, we're introduced to David as a ruddy little shepherd boy out tending his father's sheep. And the Bible says that he was a man that was after God's own heart. Then one day we see David. We're told about David walking down the hills to a little creek in the middle of a valley called Elah. And in the valley of Elah, he walks down to that little creek there. He picks up five stones and puts them in his yeti that he has attached to his side that once held his lunch. He puts those five smooth round stones in there and he walks back up to the valley where stands a nine foot six giant who has nothing good to say. Like some of your friends on Facebook. And Goliath is standing there. He's huge. He's standing there with a spear like a weaver's beam. His armor bearer is carrying his shield, God's shield, before Goliath, a shield which was higher than a man's head. And the giant looks down at this ruddy-faced, slender little boy who has just emptied out his yeti and put five little stones in there. And he begins to laugh and say, this is who you send to defeat me? I'm going to put all of you in slavery by defeating this one guy. Do you not see 
that this is the scarlet cord that is woven in. Because the enemy thought if he killed Jesus, he would get all of us and put us all into captivity and we would worship and serve him. But David, just like Jesus, he pulls out a rock and he says, I, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he puts that little rock in his sling. I love this song when I was in Sunday school. And it went round and around and around and around and around. If you don't know that song, you need to go to Sunday school. And it went around and around and around and around. Now, listen just to me. If Goliath is coming at me, he's nine foot six, and David is shorter than me, which is short. I wouldn't be going round and around and around and around and around. I'd empty the whole clip on him. It's gone. It's out. Goliath is standing there, still upset about David coming at him. The Bible says that rock hit its mark. You remember what it said back in Genesis? The, the Old Testament is pointing us to Christ. David takes a rock and he crushes the head of his enemy. He crushes the head of the enemy that was going to put all of God's people into captivity. David is saying, this is what God's going to do. When Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God shows up, he is the rock which is Christ Jesus and he's going to crush the head of the enemy, of your enemy that's come to put you in captivity. And so the Lord pulls David aside and says, David, I'm going to build you a house. Not only am I going to build you a house, but I'm going to ensure that your throne is never ending. That your throne is everlasting. That your throne, David, there will be somebody out of your family who always sits on this throne. So then you can go through First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, and you see the scarlet cord woven through every story that's being laid out, the coming Messiah. Then we come to the prophets, Jeremiah, along with the great prophet Isaiah. They're prophesying of the coming Messiah. Jeremiah would lift up his voice, and he preached to the tribe of praisers. He preached to Judah, saying, repent, repent, get right with God. Judah never repents, so God sends Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. And out of that battle, he seizes Jerusalem. And out of that same battle, he takes Daniel and the fairest of the royal family to his capital city, as Babylon, as captives. Then Jeremiah lifts up his voice again. And he says, repent, repent, get right with God. They never repented. They never got right with God. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back a second time in 598 B.C. And this time, he takes Ezekiel and 10,000 of the fairest into captivity into Babylon. This then Jeremiah lifts up his voice again and he says, repent, repent, get right with God, turn from your wicked ways, turn from your wickedness, and they did not repent. They never got right with God. Nebuchadnezzar comes back a third time in 587 BC and at this time he didn't have to come back anymore for this time he destroys Solomon's temple. He beats down the walls of the city and he plows under the holy city of God and he covers it with salt. He took all the people into captivity into the land of battle and the Bible says the whole face of God's earth turned dark. It was seared, bathed in in tears and in sorrow. Do you not see America in this text? God continued to say, repent, repent, and yet we do not repent, and we're fine with a few people being in captivity, a few people going crazy. Then God says, repent, repent, and then we know more people going to captivity, and eventually, if we are not careful, our nation is going to be destroyed from the inside out, and everything turned asunder. The psalmist actually recorded the scene this way in Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6. He said, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. 
We sat down in captivity and remembered what it used to be like. Verse 2, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. We put up our praise music. We were the tribe of praisers. But now because we are in captivity, now because they say we can't do it, now because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, when we should have been doing it, when we're in the right place at the right time, now we just hung up our harps. We put our keyboards away, our drums away, our musicians away. We put all the song leaders away. We put all the worship leaders away. But that's what got you in that place in the first place. We hung them up for there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. Can you imagine that? The captives asked the captives, said, now that you're in captivity, sing us a song of joy. Be joyful now that you're in captivity. And those who plundered us requested mirth. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Verse 6, if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Let me put that in Pastor Jason terms. If I do not exalt God's holiness and his holy city above my favorite football team. If I don't exalt God's holiness and his holy city above my favorite baseball team. If I don't exalt God above everything that is in my life, then Lord, let the, my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. We need to get our priorities back right, right? Fox News and CNN and MSNBC are not your gods. He is the God of all the earth. And stop allowing them to dictate whether or not you get to worship or not. Oh, we just hung our harps up here and stopped worshiping. It's time for the church to get back to worship and praising God. Oh, I wish it was like it used to be. I don't want it to be like it used to be. I want God to do a new thing in every heart and in every life and creating us a heart that's full of worship. Out of that Babylonian captivity came three great things from God. Number one, idolatry was eradicated from his people. Number two, the synagogue was born. And out of the synagogue came the church. And the services of Judah that we just talked about, the services of Judah are the same kind of church service that we just had right here. That's the services that we need. And then out of captivity came the Holy Scriptures. Then the old rabbis began to pour over God's word. They would read the prophets and then teach the people the word of God and what the prophets had to say. It was in keeping with Israel's devotion to the Bible, to God's word, that Jesus would come in with the scroll of the prophets in his hands. And in Luke chapter 4 and verse 21, he would walk into a small little synagogue and he would say, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now, just for time's sake, and Wendy's is getting built, let's just jump over all the rest of the prophets. Let's come to a time when Augustus Caesar was the Roman emperor. When Rome had the entire world in its hand. The great prophecy of Isaiah, the great prophecy of Micah, and the great prophecy of Jacob to his son Judah, and the great promise of God Almighty to Eve, the woman, was getting ready to come to pass. He said, in the seed of the woman, and in the seed of Abraham shall all the families of the earth be blessed. How am I blessed by the seed of Eve and the seed of Abraham? For out of their seed, Jesus Christ was born. And because Jesus Christ was born, I am blessed. I hope you're blessed because Jesus Christ was born. But why would Jesus come? Jesus came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for you and he came for me.
This is why he came. Because according to the word of God, his death was planned before the foundation of the world. In other words, he came into the world to die. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is why he was born. Then 30 years later, Jesus begins his ministry. He did so not under the shadow of his earthly father, not under his mother, not under his brother. He began his ministry, his earthly ministry, under the shadow of the cross. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. His duty was to introduce Jesus Christ to the world. In John chapter 1, he opens it in verse 29 and verse 36 with this introduction. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, he had provided a ram on the top of Mount Sinai, but soon, about three and a half years later, after John introduces him, he was the lamb of God that was provided to take away every sin. It was going to be on that hill of Calvary, the place of the skull, where the cross would be inserted into the ground and the enemy's head would be forever crushed. And out of this seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because no matter what I have done horizontally, the blood of Jesus is now applied to my life and the cross now covers me and my family, my whole house, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, my father, and every one of you, the scarlet cord has been woven into our lives. Behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, what would that absolutely mean to people who had lived all this time? For centuries, every morning and every evening, countless sacrifices, blood poured out, lambs offered unto God for the sins of the nation and the iniquity of the people. And John said, behold. Then Jesus would begin to teach. He would teach his disciples. He said, I've come to suffer and die. When he was transfigured, Moses and Elijah were talking to him about his death, which he would accomplish in Jerusalem. When he was anointed by Mary of Bethany, he said it was for his burial. When the Greeks came to see him from afar in John chapter 12 and verse 32, he said to them, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Then they come to the Last Supper. They're there to celebrate. And he said, this is my body. Eat in remembrance of me. Then he would say again, this is my blood. Drink in remembrance of me. Before he went to the cross, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in a travail, drops of blood, travailing for souls to be redeemed. Then he bows his head in John 19, 30, and he says, it is finished. Then on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. He appears first to Mary Magdalene, then he appears to the rest of the women. Then he appeared to two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and then he appears to Peter alone. Then that night, that Sunday night, he appeared to ten disciples and Thomas being absent. The next Sunday night, he appeared to all the disciples, all 11 of them. Then the one reason that you and I come to church is that the Lord will appear to us. The Lord would meet with them. He would reveal himself to them. Jesus appeared over and over at the top of the Mount Olivet, the final appearance, if you will. It was on that occasion at his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, to the, the disciples say, Lord, the time, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this the time that you're going to be, be establishing your kingdom on the earth? And I, for one, and I think you too, are thankful that he did not. Because there was a pause. And in that pause, we come into the age of grace, the age of the church. 
so that you and I would have the opportunity to have the scarlet cord woven into our lives as well. That the gospel would then begin to be preached into Jerusalem and in Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. It would be even not just the uttermost, but into the guttermost parts of the earth, down where God found me. The age of the church. So God has not failed in his purpose at all to establish his kingdom. He's just allowing time for you and I to weave the scarlet cord into the windows of our hearts. We're saved just like Rahab. She didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. She didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. But grace was shown. He came to weave that fabric of the blood of Jesus into every life and every heart. Or to simply say like this as we quote out of Ecclesiastes. To make a cord that cannot be broken. If the blood is over your life and the grace of Almighty God is there, there is nothing your enemy can do. And the age of grace is brought to us by the Lamb that we beheld. And all a man has to do to put this over this. All he has to do is repent. Turn his heart and his life over to Jesus Christ. And Jesus will save him. Romans says it like this. If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Then thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. But it's not enough to believe in your heart. Right? you, You can't text it. You can't email it. You can't journal it. You can't put it in your diary. You have to say something. And the reason why I think he wants us to say it is because if it's written down, then it can be held against you. But if you say it, then he can wipe it away. Because if you write it in your journal, you write it in your diary, you text, you email it, then somebody else can get a hold of it and start snooping on the things that God has forgiven. But he wants you to say it. I've realized that with Melissa, when I begin to text her and I begin to email her, things get lost in translation. I tell her, this is what you should do. This is how you should do it. And when I get home, nothing is done in the way I explained it. And so I've realized that instead of texting and emailing, the best thing for me to do is to pick up the phone and allow her ear to hear my voice. And I think that's the best way you can talk to God. Don't pick up the phone. Just open your heart. Use your mouth so that God's ear hears your voice. Save me. Forgive me. I'm sorry. Save me. And God will save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. That's all you have to do. Let us jump from Romans through all the epistles and come to the conclusion of the Bible. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, the revelation. John alone is the only apostle left of the original. All of the other apostles are dead. The apostle Paul has just been slain under Nero. And then now Simon Peter's even been crucified and everybody's been dead for 30 or 40 years but John, the apostle, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. There at the church of Ephesus, he'd written his gospel and three epistles. But God takes him out of the comfort of pastoring the church at Ephesus. And God moves him to an island of Patmos. And on the island of Patmos, God says, pick up your pencil once again, John. I want to show you something. 
that you need to write down for God's people. Here's what he said. I said, I want you to write down the things that you are seeing, the things that are happening right now, and the things that will be. And so as John said, as I turned to see the voice of the one who was speaking to me, I felt like I was dead. But Christ, always being the compassionate one, put his right hand on the shoulder of his old apostle. And he said, John, do not be afraid. There is nothing to fear. Remember in the, in the garden when Adam and Eve said, Lord, we're afraid. And he said, who told you to be afraid? And here he is again saying, John, at the time of the revelation, don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. I'm coming because I have purchased you with my blood. And not only have I purchased you with my blood, but I have prepared a place for you. And John, I want you to write these things down. Do not be afraid. There is nothing to fear. Don't fear death. Don't fear the grave. Don't fear judgment. Don't fear eternity. For I am he that was dead and I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of the grave and of death and I have them so you don't need to be afraid. You do not have to be in fear, my brother. See how he commands the apostles to write it down. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and watch the things which shall be after. So John wrote about what he had seen. He tried to describe the image of God. Then he began to describe the things that are. He described the church age as we go through the first five chapters of the book of Revelation, the church age. And then he said, write the things that will be. And one of the things that will be is this moment in the revealing of the scarlet cord and the power that is given to you because that scarlet cord is interwoven into your life. It happens in Revelation chapter 12. When I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, he has been cast down. And they, meaning us, overcame him. How? By the blood of of the Lamb. The enemy has done everything in his power to overcome you, but he cannot overcome you because of the blood of the Lamb. As the old church used to say, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. And the reason why the blood of Jesus is against the enemy of my soul is the blood of Jesus is covering me. The blood of Jesus isn't against me. The blood of Jesus is a protection all around me and my house, my family, my marriage, my sons, my daughters, everything in my life. And so the enemy comes running at me and he runs into the blood. That's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. And we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and then we get a word of testimony. What's our word of testimony? He accused me. He lied on me. He tried to deceive me. But here I am before the throne of God with a robe that has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I don't stand here guilty of anything he's saying against me because I've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. People say, oh, that's in heaven. How do we overcome him here? The same exact way. Because as it is in heaven, so shall it be on the earth. You overcome him by the blood of the lamb in your life. It overcomes the accusations of the enemy of your soul. Y'all give me three minutes or I can close right now. I was like, oh, I don't know. The songwriter would write it like this. There is wonder working in the blood of the Lamb. What's the working power of the blood? Well, Revelation chapter 12 said that blood makes me an overcomer. 
Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that blood makes me perfect and gives me an everlasting covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, the blood purges my mind from dead works and allows me to serve the living God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says I'm redeemed through the blood and I'm redeemed from the power of the evil. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, I have peace through the blood. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4, I have victory through the blood. Hebrews 10 22, the power of sin and iniquity is broken in my life through the blood of Jesus. First John chapter 5 and verse 8, I'm delivered, I'm saved through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24, His blood speaks of better things. His blood speaks of better things. Well, to understand that, we have to go back to the book of Genesis. Cain shows up, he kills his brother Abel. Abel's blood is going into the ground. God shows up and says to Cain, the blood that you have shed of your brother Abel, his blood is speaking to me. What was Abel's blood speaking? He was speaking, Lord, I need vengeance. I need revenge. I need justice. I need recompense for what has happened to me. And so the blood of Jesus doesn't speak like Abel's blood. The blood of Jesus speaks of better things. So when the enemy comes and says, we need judgment. We need revenge. We need recompense for all the better, the things that you have done in your life. You step back and say, but the blood of Jesus speaks of better things. Instead of revenge, it speaks of grace. It speaks of mercy. It speaks of deliverance and of salvation. His blood speaks better things over the top of your life. Then we will understand the songwriter said, what? What can wash away sin stains? What can give me power to overcome? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's why Evan was singing the song today. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. You're covered by the blood and overcome the enemy through the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. It gives you power to overcome. That's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. Would you stand with me across the building? I kept you three minutes longer. More than anything, than learning anything, being inspired by anything, I want you to grab a hold of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And when the enemy comes in, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. What is that standard? It's the cross of Calvary and the blood of Jesus in my life and overcome the enemy of your soul through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. Let me pray with you before you leave. Heavenly Father, over every person under the sound of my voice, I pray the blood of Jesus would speak amazing things over the top of their lives. For your blood speaks of better things. Not of destruction, but Lord of resurrection. Not of sickness, but Lord of healing. Not of bondage, but Lord of deliverance. Not of judgment, but of grace and mercy in our lives. So we thank you, Lord, today for the blood of Jesus Christ that speaks over our lives giving us the power to speak over the top of our enemy with the word of our testimony. We thank you. We give you praise and glory for what you have done in our lives and for weaving the scarlet cord and the power of the blood into our lives. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor as forever do your holy name. In the name of Jesus we pray and all of God's people said, 
We love you. May God bless you. Membership at 1 o'clock, Auditorium D, Room 4, next Sunday, 9, 11, 1. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to check out our podcast weekly, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also visit siwcenter.org to find out more information about Southern Illinois Worship Center. Be sure to join us right here next week.